B-Side content represents the opinions of the host and his guests. We acknowledge that some subjects may be sensitive in nature and not suitable for everyone. B-Side content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical or mental health advice. And if you do need physical or mental health guidance, please consult a licensed healthcare professional. Hello, this is Brian with The B-Side, a podcast about dad grief, what it teaches us, and how it can make us better. Welcome. Today I want to tackle a question that comes up, particularly from people who are early in their grief journey. And uh, with that, I want to share a little bit about what I went through in the first three years after losing my daughter, uh, Galia, um, in October of 2016. Some tend to wonder, you know, when is the pain going to end or when will my life feel normal? For me, it uh, three years was, I think, a big, I don't want to say turning point, but in hindsight, I realize that it took about three years. And, and the reason I think it it shook out that way for me is that, uh, you know, the first year is the year of firsts, right? You're dealing with, okay, the first Christmas without them, their first birthday, their angel anniversary, all that stuff. And I, um, yeah, I think you kind of are gearing up for that. You hear about it too, going into it. And I think everybody, if you have a support system, everybody's kind of bracing for you and, and all that. So the first year is, um, Really, I think a big coping year, but I found too that you know, that second year is almost like that sophomore slump. I think the definition of a sophomore is a wise fool, and that's uh, when I look back at it. That's honestly, I think how I was. I was a little caught off guard at how um, things still tripped me up. Things like I, I can remember, like Google Photos and Facebook. Uh, they would give these like reminder photos and things like that. Remember when, and it'd be these photos of, you know, my daughter and therapy and times in the hospital and um, which, which were not all awful. I, you know, we did find ways to smile and did find ways to, to find joys, but uh, just little things like that would catch me off guard. And I would catch myself thinking like, oh, I should be so much further along, whatever further along is. I, that's, that's, it's a big question mark, but I still think the second year is, it can be a very challenging one because for me, my mind was expecting me to be something that I wasn't yet, yet I couldn't really even clearly define what I thought I should be. Um, I think there is just that, that kind of, I don't know if it's just silly macho bullshit in the male psyche or whatever that thinks like I should be quote unquote over something by a certain time, which is kind of a joke when it comes to losing your kid. Like you're, you're taking that with you forever and you're never really over it. That's just my not so humble opinion. But I do think there's something inherently challenging in dealing with an issue that does not have a firm timeline. In addition, one of the pieces I had to figure out in hindsight, after a few years, was that defining what my version now of good or normal is, is something where the goalposts have been completely moved. It's just an open field now. They've they've taken away the goals. They've taken away the, the markers on the field. And I have to create whatever that new normal is because I'm completely changed now after going through this. And so... There was this constant confusion around wanting to get better, but not really knowing exactly what that better is. And again, for me, it took a few years to sift all that out. And 
In many situations, I really didn't realize what I learned until after I had already done something, gone to a counselor or just said, fuck it, I'm going to work. Um, whatever the decision was, um, I, I sort of had to construct my future normal after looking back, back at two or three years of experiences, both good and bad, that allowed me to start really healing. And when I looked back on those first couple of years, I noticed it was a tale of almost two Brian's. The way the best way I can put it is is this way. If you were to look at how people travel this road, I think there you can boil this down into sort of two types of people. And then these these may be the extremes, but just just sit with me for a second on this. There are those who they want to stare this down now. My wife is much more like that. She she is, uh, you know, I'm in a, this is an extremely intense emotional situation. I need to stare this down now. I need to sit with this. I need to journal about it. I need to do all those things and I need to be with it, right? Um, and then, so let's just call that person exhibit A, okay? Then there's also the other person who, let's just go to the opposite extreme for a moment here, exhibit B. This is I don't want to talk about this. I I want nothing to do with this. I'm going to work. I'm done. And that's just what I'm going to do, right? And I recognize that when I was able to look back at that three-year point and look back at those you know, two, three years, I was able to see that really I was a mixture of both. And thankfully, I do have to thank my wife for that. And, and I know that her full feeling for a little while there, and I, it's, I'm probably being a little sketchy here speaking for her, but you know, her thought probably looking at me many times going, you're being a fucking workaholic. You need to face this shit. You need to sit with it. Right. And she bit her tongue, right? Because she gave me that time to say, no, I'm, I'm going to be the dude. I'm, I'm going to focus on you guys and, and you guys focus on yourselves. I'm going to show up. I'll provide all. Yeah. Right. I need to do that. And she allowed me to do that, and she allowed me to be the workaholic that I am, and and it, it allowed me to be me. And I think a lot of times, as a, a guy going through an experience like this, you know, what do you do when this first happens? You don't know, and you're stuck with yourself. And I'm stuck. You know, there I was stuck with the the good Brian, the bad Brian, the the happy Brian, the sad Brian, the whatever Brian, right? And I've had these accumulation of experiences leading up to this. And now they're all fucking meaningless because I've had this event and, and, and what do I do? And that led me down a path of about a year and a half of what I would characterize as probably classic avoidance and inaction. Let's just put it that way. Um, I really chose the route of doing, not thinking. And after about two years, I was pretty much in a chronic state of anger. I was fortunate enough to find an amazing male grief counselor, and that really was the start of trying to establish and create whatever my thoughts of a better future might look like and actually be. And I say that in reference to what I started out with, that uh, putting myself in the shoes of that per- that person early on who's wondering, when will I ever feel better? When when will this feel okay again? Um, again, at that, I think at that two-year point, and with the help of an awesome counselor, that's when I could start to carve out what that might start to look like. And and I think that between year two and three was kind of a messy year when it came to figuring that out. What what 
my new normal or my new uh, Brian is okay, quote unquote, should really look like. For me, that took examining uh, quite a few things. I, first of all, I had to forgive myself for being a workaholic. I realized that our situation was a cancer journey and we lived in a hospital for almost a year. Our daughter didn't have an immune system. We could never leave. Trying to create some sense of normal in that environment, right? And and work was my normal. It was my connection to the world. I'm a freelance writer and, you know, it's to call somebody and have to do a phone interview, to write a story. Like, this is my connection to the world out there, outside these these hospital walls. So work is not an awful thing. It, it, and it kept me sane. And I had to forgive myself and like, oh, did you work too much? You know, you should have focused on this or this. No, I was me, okay? It worked. And at the same time, it was also time to face feelings of guilt and massive failure. And I'm not sure that... I would have been as open to it had uh, my spouse not given me that grace and that time to maybe blow it off a little bit. You do, I, I personally believe that I needed to eventually come to the point where, okay, maybe I need to address this. And, and did I, did I, you know, I did a lot of the same shit my wife did. I journaled like a madman. I wrote letters to my daughter. I, you know, I, I, went and went back through photos that I could not even look at in the first year or two. I, you know, had to force myself to write down why I loved her, why I missed her. I forced myself to cry like, you know, I gave myself these safe places where I would be, I would just allow myself to be vulnerable with all the feelings I'm having with it. I rediscovered my love for guitar and allowed myself to tinker around with songwriting and just noodling around, no real attachment to, you know, whether it was great or good or anything like that, but just creating a little bit of a sandbox to play in. My daughter was very into the arts and she would love it when I would pick up the guitar and figure out a song that she knew and um, play it for her. And, and that instrument became really a, a breath of fresh air for me. I also learned to give myself permission to cry unapologetically. And one of the places I discovered that felt very appropriate uh, and strange at first, but it worked for me, was on my morning runs. I would have to stop, and it, it was always a song that triggered it, and I would just absolutely be just heaving and gasping like I, I was completely out of breath. And... I'm sure some of the people who saw me do that the first time were thinking like, this guy's going to drop dead. But it's actually something that I've done enough times now that I don't even have to stop. It's almost like I kind of embrace um, the tears flying off my cheeks and my respiration or my breathing being off and, and maybe a little unpredictable or it feels weird, but... I've gotten to the point now where I actually completely embrace it, and I and I look forward to it at times. Um, a song will trigger it, and and I just actually now I don't even stop. I just keep running. So I bet I look really strange to people who are who who may see me. But oddly, um, I absolutely love crying while I run. I, I don't know why. It's weird, but it works. Another thing that I would say was probably the biggest pivot. Um, in that third year was when my counselor looked at me and he said, your daughter's life was not that 11 months in the hospital. And there was something in the way he said it 
it made sense. It felt cruel, but it jarred me in my thinking. It helped me realize that I was putting all of my energy into the pain of the journey with her. And that perspective, I realized, allows me to stay in that poor me thinking, the the thoughts of no one will understand my journey, they don't get it, and all that crap. And guess what? I had to look myself in the mirror and say, Brian, you're being a bit of a selfish bitch now. Now, honestly, there was a little bit of a journey just in unpacking that statement. Your daughter's life was not that 11 months in the hospital. And when he said that to me at first, it was kind of a, like an epiphany. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. And all right. And then I walked out of the office and I thought, well, how the fuck am I going to do this? Like, no, all I have in my head are the horrors, right? Or just, you know, that, that last photo I took of her dead in the fucking bed. That, that is all that's imprinted in my fucking brain. Yeah, so this is really nice, dude. Thanks, Mr. Mr. Fucking Psychologist. You got this all fixed up in my, you know, mental filing cabinet and sorted it all out for me. Thank you, right? And, and, but then I realized that, shit, that's a journey too. And you know what? That journey was not easy in and of itself. Just that one little piece would upend me at times. And, and and it still does. It still does. You know, how there are days when I'm like, how the fuck do I focus on the, you know, the positive? Because it, it, on the surface, it seems a little flaky that way. It's like, oh, yeah, just focus on the positive. Right? It's not. That's not what he's saying. But you can't. I, I did realize I could reprogram my brain to go, okay, yeah, I'm going to let you have those down moments. Everybody's going to have them. But force yourself to think beyond the crime, so to speak, right? And I use that word very deliberately, crime. Once I was able to accept that that was part of my journey, that I'm going to view her life not as those 11 months in a hospital, I could also open up to a little more honesty about myself and what I was before this happened and the assumptions I made about the world. I can't remember. I read a statistic a long time ago, early in the, uh, this is one of the books I read when I was, I was reading books here and there. My wife was kicking stuff my way. And there's like a statistic somewhere in like hundred thousand parents lose a child in a year or something like that around the world or, or something like that. Right. And I realized too, that I was operating under this assumption that I'm going to be that 98% of the people or whatever that don't go through this, right? And that's really arrogant. That's really fucking arrogant to assume that what, maybe because, you know, I'm a white guy that lives in the suburbs and, you know, I've met certain socioeconomic you know, pillars that, you know, Hey, I, I take her, I took her to the pediatrician and, you know, she's got all her wellness exams and everything looked great, right? Everything was supposed to be fine. That I'm supposed to be immune to this. This should not happen to me. And I had to look myself and I had to stare myself in the mirror that the times that I sat there looking at those little freaking St. Jude's coin drop things at the checkout stand at the grocery store and how I I didn't want to look at that bald kid, right? Because I didn't want my child to be that bald kid and I didn't think she could be. Well, guess what? She fucking became that bald kid. And I'm not going to say, oh, that's what I earned, right? This happens again to many 
people, many supposedly whatever good people, right? Shitty things happen to good people. Shitty things can happen to anyone. And I'm not alone. And it's super arrogant of me to think that I should be outside of that possibility. And once I could be honest with myself about this, not not that I beat the crap out of myself and said, hey, you know, oh gosh, you're such a terrible guy for thinking you, you know, your child wouldn't die, then she did. Ha ha, you got it, right? I'm sure there's some religious people that would probably let me have it on that front that I did something wrong. But um, but I could be more honest with myself about many other things. And there are still days that I absolutely do not accept that. I still get caught up in the fact that she's gone too early. This is an out of order death. This is not like losing a parent or a grandparent. I'm not supposed to bury my child. Those days are going to come. And it took a little time for me to accept that I'm not weak if those days keep showing up. Again, that's part of me constructing that whatever my new happy or getting over it or feeling okay is, this this Brian who has gone through this, whatever that construct is now. I mean, part of that construct is accepting the fact that there are going to be days that I'm going to walk into a fucking Walmart and I'm going to see a, you know, a three or four year old girl with her, you know, her dad holding her hand. And I'm just going to have to turn around and leave because I can't see it. Not that I don't wish the best for those people. Um, but it's just going to be too much to bear. And I'm just going to have to turn around. And that is part of my existence now. It's okay. I'm not fucking running from that. I don't see myself as weak. Anytime I cry, those are the tears that those tears are the love for my daughter. I don't ever fucking apologize for crying in front of anyone. And that too took time for me to say that. Think about it. When you start to cry in front of someone, your, your first instinct is, sorry, sorry. Why are you apologizing? And, and, and it took me a long time to realize, what the fuck? Why the fuck am I apologizing for crying about losing my daughter? Those tears are the love for my daughter. If someone across the table can't fucking handle it, that is on them. I just don't give a shit. Okay. And that is the healthiest, I don't fucking give a shit in the world. And in time, it actually becomes empowering. And it couldn't become empowering until I was really honest with myself about uh, my crappiness before and after the event, and that I'm and realizing that I'm not the only person in the world who's experienced pain. The other piece of it that gets a little complicated too is that you're going to start to hear over time. Uh, at least I did, obviously, and I think we all do. If you're on this journey with me, uh, you hear these people telling you and you're you're really acknowledging it because it's true everybody's journey it takes you know it's their timeline it's all you know there's no right or wrong way to do grief you know and i completely also sympathize and empathize with the thinking of i just don't want to fucking hear that i want answers and and it sucks because it takes time to find your answers and sometimes hearing someone tell you that no matter how truthful it is it doesn't help Okay, because again, we're dealing with something that does not have a definite timeline. And time in the world of grief recovery can be an absolute chaos maker. And I guess like anything, it comes down to what you do with the time. And for me, over the course of three years, there was the time to not think about it, to not address it. And there was the time to address it. And that collection over three years of sort of action and not action and making decisions sometimes to just go about my day. It was the combination of those along with the 
emotional work days, so to speak, that allowed me to carve out a little bit of a template for how I wanted to pursue the future. And that future looks a lot like this to me now. First and foremost, I'm not the only one who has experienced pain in the world. And right now, there is another parent who's letting go of a child. And just like them, I've made good and bad decisions in the past when I had my daughter through her treatment after the fact. And those decisions don't define me. They teach me. And there's no need to be afraid of making any decisions going forward. I remind myself that it's okay to do things to honor her, to remember her. And I also allow myself to have days where I may not even think of her. And I know that may sound blasphemous to some. I I think some parents really pressure themselves into living every day for their child that has died. Perhaps that works for them. And there are days when I feel that way too. But there are also days when I can simply enjoy time with my other child. And it's even okay to enjoy things that have nothing to do with either of my children. And most importantly, I think I'm kind of coming full circle here a little bit. I have learned to embrace that grief is my teacher and constant reminder that there's a heck of a lot more going on in the world outside of what's floating around between my two ears. And if I choose to only focus on my pain, I stifle my ability to open myself up to a lot of beauty going on out there. And just as my daughter's life was not that 11 months that I lived in a hospital, she spent eight and a half years with me and let me be her student. She laughed with me. She cried with me. She forgave me. She accepted me. She loved me. She gave me the absolute gift of wanting me to be a part of her life. And when she became that bald head at the checkout stand. She empowered me to embrace beauty as a human thing, not a physical thing. And in many ways, I feel as though it's insulting to her to focus so much of my journey going forward on coping with grief and pain. Mistakes and life pains have always taught me in the past So grief should be no different. I just need to make the choice to allow it to teach me. This is Brian. Thanks for spending some time with me today. This has been Brian on the B-Side. Thanks for listening today. We'll catch you next time.